1: Welcome to the Rerooted Podcast with Francesca Maxime, trauma sensitive mindfulness meditation teacher and poet. Together, we'll take a closer look at approaches to transforming trauma with insights from psychology, neuroscience, spirituality, social justice, and the creative arts. Join Francesca and her guests for an exploration of our shared connection and how we can cultivate greater compassion for ourselves and for others. If you'd like to support Francesca and the Rerouted podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com
0: forward slash Francesca.
2: Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, This is the Rerouted podcast on Ram Dass' Be Here Now Network. I'm Francesca Maxime. You can find more about me and my offerings as a somatic psychotherapist and mindfulness teacher at MaximeClarity.com, M-A-X-I-M-E, Clarity. Clarity.com. Just acknowledging that I am on Nipmuc land and territory here in Massachusetts where I'm staying at my uh, family home. I am from Brooklyn, New York, and um, that is uh, Conarse and Lenape uh, territory and land, and that um, my pronouns are she, we, and us. And as a Haitian Dominican, Italian American woman uh, living at this time in late summer early fall 2020, um, my, you know, sort of amalgamation of me is sort of the, in many ways, conflagration of these these things that we see happening in the streets. There's a, a lot of, of mixed ethnicity, mixed um, feelings, mixed um, kind of states of being and nervous systems, if you will, um, out there uh, in the world. And I'm here to kind of talk to someone who knows so much about the combination of, internal experience and also the influences of like cultural experience and imprinting. Sarah Payton, uh, international speaker and facilitator, has a passion for weaving together neuroscience knowledge and experiences of healing that unify people with their brains and their bodies, and dare I say their heart, <laughs> their hearts. Sarah makes interpersonal neurobiology research available for our embodied brains to use in living at peace with ourselves. And Sarah's website is empathybrain.com, and I just want to introduce um, Sarah Hirsch. She's also the author of Your Resonant Self, the book, and um, working on the workbook accompaniment to that also. So, Sarah, welcome. It's beautiful to see you again, I'll say.
1: Thank you, Francesca. It's a, a delight to be with you.
2: Uh, You know, one of the things that I love about you, and there are many, is the language um, that you choose and you choose sweet language and um, softer, gentler, encouraging, you know, often affirming, I find, language. And part of that is because you have a background in nonviolent communications as, as one modality, but you're sort of involved in a different variety of influences. Can you just maybe tell our listeners and viewers a little bit about what's influenced your body of work and what's brought you to using the lenses that you use, and then we'll unpack a little bit more about how those apply to this moment and um, racialized trauma and racialized trauma healing.
1: Mm. Thank you, Francesca. First of all, to acknowledge the land I'm on, of course, I'm just white, and I'm on this land that was taken by false treaty from the Chinook people here along the Columbia River between Oregon and Washington. Um, The folks who were negotiating the treaty had the enough people sign it and then sent it to Washington, D.C., and the Congress never signed it, never approved tribal status for the folks that this land belongs to. So not only am I on indigenous land taken by genocide, I'm on indigenous land taken by false treaty. So it's an honor to step into even being asked about anything to do with racialized trauma. Just to start with, I want to say... uh, I have such a a love for humanity and such a longing for us to do less harm with each other. So I'm just grateful to be here, do what I can, and obviously have my own limitations and and blinders. But the the three streams of knowledge that come together for me are um, nonviolent communication, as you mentioned. Uh, I'm a certified trainer of nonviolent communication. And relational neuroscience, what do our brains do in relationship? How are we changed by relational connection? Yes. Francesca, how do you and I change each other in our dialogue? Uh, how are we moved? How are we touched? Uh, how do our brains shift? Because our brains shift in response to one another. And, um, and the more connected we are, the more we're shifting each other's brains. So that's the second And then the third stream that I love working with is family constellation work. So how are we in relationship with our ancestors? How are we in relationship with historical systemic trauma? How has poverty impacted our epigenetic profile and impacted what we believe we can do and how we have a sense we can move through the world? How do we, in many ways, how do we limit ourselves in order to stay loyal? to the beloved people who went before us. And um, because it's hard, it's a hard thing to go to a place where our ancestors haven't been. It might be a place of uh, more abundance, financial. Uh, It might be a place of being able to see systemic racism. Maybe our ancestors never saw it and wouldn't acknowledge it and were part of the genocide. That came with enslavement and the genocide of the uh, American, North American indigenous peoples. So, h- how are we impacted by our historic blindness? How are we impacted now in this moment by our present day blindness? What can we do to be in relationship with larger systems so that we move again with less harm in the world?
2: Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, and I do think that, you know. Those are three modalities that um, that I'm familiar with and, and I'm not formally trained in, but I use um, Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication often as a framework for dialogue or at least in attempts, um, especially with, with couples. And I do see a lot of interracial couples actually also, um, which is, um, you know, very pressing. And, and maybe that's even a place to start for, for sort of opening the conversation because I think that, you know, a lot of listeners are... Um, our are are mindfulness practitioners and 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 a lot are um just regular lay people living lives and in relationship with others as we all are as you just said and one of the things that um you know again not naming names are too specific but it was basically like a, a black client who's who's partnered with a, a, a white uh woman was saying i i, I just don't ever feel comfort You know, they they had moved and they were returning the U-Haul and there was a police car across the street from where the U-Haul drop-off place was. And there was a whole sense of um, what he described as anxiety around the body and just around the idea of feeling very contracted and very um, fearing for life and fearing for not having any other like no exit like no way out of that situation and this is just in the present day this is just going about your business just doing normal things and i guess maybe i want to just maybe use that as a touch point to talk a little bit about the ways in which the cultural larger influences of um what we'll call white supremacy or what i will anyway for the for the for the purposes of this conversation affect relationships but affect um, the neurobiology of the person, the way in which the person is actually you know holding on to the stress or processing the stress, and what we can learn about um, what that means and how we can begin to release some of that when in many ways the threat seems to be constant for people of color in this racialized society. It's it's it's
1: it's such a burden. It's such a burden on people who uh, who are not uh, this dumb. This um this this don't have the white identity. It's 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 a burden on the immune system. We we're seeing this now with the unequal rates of infection with COVID, with the unequal rates of death with COVID. We've been seeing this for some years already, with uh, the new tracking that we're able to do about health and race. So we see that with each microaggression, it makes an impact on people's health, and um, and makes it harder to recover from colds and flus, for example. Just something that simple, difficult to to handle viruses because of this. Constant experience of stress. So uh, I have a, a huge mourning about this and, uh, and, and so long to live in a different world. But the way that this mounts up is uh, every time that our body is in a situation where, and it's so important to point out that helplessness, that sense of no way out that you mm. mentioned, Francesca, that that every time that we're, that we're alarmed, there's a flow of cortisol. And then every time that we're hopeless, there's also an immense depression of the immune system as we move into immobilization, to what Stephen Porges calls immobilization. So there are multiple hits as people cycle through experiences of helplessness and of uh, alarm through their daily lives. Now we 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 can create more and more and more resilience for ourselves, no matter who we are, no matter what system we live in, no matter if the stress and trauma are ongoing. And we we create this resilience for ourselves and for others with accompaniment, with self-accompaniment, with accompaniment of others. So uh, I don't know where the couple that you were working with got to if the woman came to a point of really understanding the man's experience. Hmm. But that, that bridge of understanding creates a little resilience. It balances the nervous system. It allows us to be restored to a sense of mattering and belonging.
3: Hmm.
1: And mattering and belonging are the most important things for human bodies. When we have a sense of mattering and belonging, everything goes better. Our our face is enlivened, our body language is alive, uh, we have high heart rate variability, we can digest our food really easily, and, and our immune system gets to have that reset of coming back online to create the cells that fight viruses, to create the T-cells. So for each of us, as we move into this world that is rife with systemic racism, the more that we let each person we come into contact with know that they matter, the more we're supporting everybody's immune system, despite the incredible burden that folks live with.
2: Mm you know it's so funny that's beautiful thank you for sharing because um you know i sort of did a um a, a reparative exercise around you know not not using that situation but but sort of validating like you know um, showing that that you matter right and so you use the i statements to say like if there was a microaggression to say you know i i i when i when i heard you say this you know um what I made up about it. This is a, a version of it. What I made up about it is that you know you 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 don't like my partner because of their race, and mm-hmm. um, you know you're not supportive of our relationship. And I felt really disrespected and dismissed and unhonored. And um, you know, would you be willing to do to offer an apology and also to to, to do? Some, some work around this issue um, by reading this book and by going to this class with me or something like that. And it was so amazing because, I mean, this is just sort of a version of what I said, but that the, the person who is feeling maligned was really, really like brought to tears around the idea of having felt met in that I, in having felt really like, wow, you, you get it. You're, you're willing to put your own self in there and kind of stand up. Me and mm-hmm. I think that that's that relational piece that you're talking about is like that is part of the buffer that's part of the scaffolding for these physical somatic allostatic load heavy burdens that can accumulate in bodies that are that are non-white in a racialized society. Yeah, it's
3: it's,
1: a, it's an amazing thing. The 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 healing that can happen with acknowledgement and care and and making each other human. Yeah. That feels a little somehow too Pollyanna. I think I wanna say it slightly differently. I wanna say even even in this world where where bodies are so impacted by power imbalances and by centuries of oppression there's still room for person-to-person connection and person-to-person encouragement and person-to-person protection like it's very important to me that people with white bodies practice and learn to step in to be um, to, to, to confront and um, to confront other white people, just so that folks who are people of color don't have to do it all the time.
3: Mm.
1: So that there's a consciousness that we share moving in and a responsibility something else I long for, Uh, that that if we have more privilege in any society, that we use that privilege as much as we can in support of everybody mattering.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I, this idea of privilege and, and, and sort of, again, and I just want to say this and name it explicitly, it's not that there's a thing of like, White people are bad, and you know it's not like that. It's that we're all born into a system. We all have conditioning, and that in a racialized society, um, on you know, sort of based on these systems of dominance and and oppression, um, that there's certainly just conditioning that we inherit in that way, and 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 part of that is is the implicit biases that, that, that we carry Um, and just naming that and, 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 you know, sort of interrogating that. And I think one of the things that often I see come up with that is for people who are white, uh, that there's often a lot of shame that feels like it comes up. And, um, there's a lot of difficulty, I think, and that shows up in the body and also in the behavior and the comportment when dealing with things like racism and trying to address it. And, you know, you just talked about Stephen Porges and polyvagal theory, which kind of is explaining the ways in which we have our survival responses. And you have, um, a constellation, if you will, of survival responses. And you also work with something that you call unconscious contracts. And I'm wondering if you could kind of maybe talk a little bit about any of that in terms of how it may or may not pertain to shame, if that even fits together.
1: <laughs> yeah, totally fits. All, all of it really fits together. Let's see, where's a good starting point? Um, First of all, just to, to touch on this subject of the way that shame comes up when something like racism gets raised. Um, and, and the, the burden that non-white bodies have carried for so long that the shame would be so great, it would just shut down people's ability to hear feedback. Uh, and part of, uh, so I want to just acknowledge that that, this is, that, that this is a long-standing pattern for folks who are white-bodied, that the shame takes them out and they stop being relational.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so let me explain a little bit about unconscious contracts so mm-hmm. that we can put them into this context. Uh, and I'm 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 very I'm very moved by the the way that this that this unfolds when people do this work. Mm. Uh, part of the way that we humans respond to relationship is we is is we try so hard to learn from our moments of heartbreak. Human beings do not like to have their heart broken. And human beings will make themselves all kinds of promises, uh, n- never to be heartbroken again. I will not hope so that my heart will never be broken again. Uh, I will not speak publicly in order to keep from being shamed and humiliated. I will, I will not stand up, uh, for for others who are being harmed in order to survive myself. Contracts that come not from the present day, but that come from the past, from our childhoods, from moments of trauma and from moments of lack of accompaniment. Humans need more than anything else to feel like there's somebody with them. Human bodies need it so much that we actually have heat receptors in our skin, this is the work of James A. Cohen, that, that we have heat receptors in our skin that are specifically meant to feel body heat. Mm. They aren't meant to, to let us know we're being burned. They aren't meant to, uh, to let us know that things are too cold. They're specifically like little feelers that's in everybody's skin. that's just going, is there anybody here? And of course, here we are in COVID in the U.S., Right. With so much isolation, our bodies are are are, are starving for body body heat and yeah action. yeah um, so so here we are. we can make contracts never to get it wrong, always to get it right. I, Sarah, solemnly swear to my essential self that I will never do things wrong, that I will always do them right so that I so that I can belong and so that I'm not shamed and so that I'm not alone in this world, no matter the cost to myself. And if we keep this contract to always get it right, to never make mistakes, then we're not open to hearing <laughs> that we've made a mistake.
3: Mm. We're
1: not available to be able to do the download of going, oh my God, I hurt you. I'm appalled and sorry and sad, and I don't want to hurt you. It's, it, that's a deep learning um, mm. that cannot happen if we have an agreement with ourselves never to be wrong. And the world that we live in, the colonized world that we live in, has been so strangely glorifying of perfection and of doing it right and getting it right so for me it's a bit like we're seeing the traumas of the of specifically intensely seeing the traumas of the loss of land in the 131400s in the british isles that created this centuries of a flood of immigrants that went out and took over the world with these cultural contracts mm. and so uh and so we need to learn to let go of our contracts
2: is cultural contracts yeah. yeah i just think mm. i want to just underscore that like that, that that this is a not just a me thing this is a cultural piece this is a in order to, like you say, get it right, I do solemnly swear that I'll, I'll get it right the first time in order to not be rejected, to be abandoned, to fit into whatever it is, and that that can be a cultural phenomenon as much as it can be a personal one.
1: Yeah, yeah. I love what Hizmaa Menofkin says. He says, uh, we call personal trauma personality. We call family trauma, I'm paraphrasing, so I'm not exactly right. Mm. We call family trauma Uh, family stories and we call uh, systemic trauma
3: culture (laughs) Mm. yeah
2: yeah and that's interesting because that whole piece on cultural somatics which um, Resma and um, Tata Hosumi and, and and a variety of folks are now starting to dip into really does sort of get into that collective nervous system if you will like how we have come to be as a body as an interdependent body and you know i've sort of said for those who are familiar with attachment theory you know there's the secure attachment and then there's the um you know uh there's the there's the piece of um mm, insecure with ambivalent and insecure with avoidant and insecure with disorganized and that there's this there's this piece of um really feeling as though that the whole um, piece of disorganized or I should say insecure attachment around um, avoidant and dismissive attachment is kind of a cultural somatic piece. I think of meritocracy and a rugged individualism and of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, kind of a situation, which can be um, very difficult to find that reparative place of the rupture and then the repair where you're met relationally once again. And so that this isn't just an individual thing, but it's a cultural piece and it's been kind of cooked into that unconscious cultural contract that you talk about. And um, and restoring maybe secure or earned or learned secure cultural attachment is kind of what I think is the reparative work of of racial healing.
1: Yes. And if if we can if we can heal the world just a little bit along with it, because one of the things about attachment that's important to know, I, I used to just puzzle about this. I was like studying attachment, and I was like, fifty percent of people are supposed to be securely attached. A little over fifty percent. Where do they find these people? I would say to myself.
2: I know I've thought the same thing, but yeah. Right. But
1: then, what I discovered is that when a securely attached person is under stress, they shift toward avoidance. It's the most common shifting. Is a an uh, 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 an upcycling of the doing and the seeking and the taking care of problems and the getting stuff done happens when a securely attached person is under stress Mm. and so we're walking around we see it in heart rate variability this is the research that i found was heart rate variability research that when people who are securely attached are under stress their hearts respond more like an avoidantly attached heart Mm. and so part of what we're seeing walking around in the world is sure a securely attached world or more than 50% securely attached world, but everybody's under stress. That's why I'm saying let's throw in a little world healing too, so that we can actually be our best selves,
3: Mm. so
1: that we can actually experience secure attachment with ourselves and with the world and with each
3: other.
2: Yeah, that's beautiful. And, and, you know, I have to remember that when I when I first reached out to you to do this podcast, it's because you had put out a beautiful email newsletter as you do again, empathybrain.com and Sarah, you can find on the nonviolent communications portals as well as her own website, um, Sarah Payton. Um, that really that your way of holding space for acknowledging the ruptures and acknowledging the 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 pain and the piece around accountability as being reparative is also I think so critical to um, to the healing. And so, you know, we started talking a little bit about the shame response and the polyvagal response. And then we kind of widened it to the cultural response of just like me as a person and my unconscious contract to what's our cultural unconscious contract. But um, how does maybe accountability and stepping into maybe learning actually like didactic pieces or encyclopedic type of pieces help support if someone wants to lean into it, um, And one is able to scaffold a shame response with an acknowledgement of of the sort of meaning it a little bit. How does that then help actually do the 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 regulation at a deeper level um, with others? As you use the left brain to kind of help support, you know, the the right brain heart opening that is the embodied connection.
1: The easiest movement for us, anyone who has privilege and wants to be more accountable and be able to receive feedback, is is to release the unconscious contracts that lead us to believe that there's a right way to do things. Once we let go of the idea that there's a right way to do things, then we're more fully in the present moment, and we're actually able to perceive that something has gone wrong. Oh, you know, Francesca, your face has stopped moving. I said, I must have said something or said something happened about three or four sentences ago. What, please, have I said something? You know, to have that level of a capacity to notice uh, the people that we are in relationship with Mm. comes with the release of the unconscious contracts because the unconscious contracts, when we break them, so I have a contract not to do any harm not always to do things right, somebody says to me, hey, ouch, that just hurt. I can't actually hear them. I'm, I've gone into a shame response because my contract is broken. Mm. It takes me into the immobilization state, the, the immobilization state, the collapse of the nervous system. And in that state, I'm no longer noticing my partner or my friend or the person who I was walking by on the street. I don't see them anymore because shame casts our eyes down and many people have a rage response to their own shame. And so then there's that, that reactive outburst. What do you mean? I'm not a racist and race racism, the epithet racist has been used so very personally negative, so associated with terrible violence was the violence of the civil rights movement and and so there's a reclamation underway of the word racist as, as to really signify systemic forces that we are subject to, that we're stepping into, that we need to become aware of, that we can't always help, that there is no right way, that for one person of a color or one non-white body, there's there's going to be one response that actually supports connection and supports a sense of belonging. And there's going to be a, a, the same response with another person of color. It's not going to work at all. It's going to fail miserably. Mm,
3: mm.
1: The more we come into relationship with who, who people actually are and how they're responding, rather than thinking that anyone is a representative of a group except to acknowledge. Harm, systemic harm we need to be able to do that um, the, the, the the better off our bodies will be receiving feedback and the better off the bodies of everybody around us are going to be because there's no collapse and then rage that prevents connection
2: mm-hmm. and, yeah the uh, rage no no I just the, the rage that prevents the connection I mean I've, I've seen that happen a lot um, and, and if you're not if you're not collapsing, collapsing feels bad. But 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 rage in some ways can feel, in some ways, in a short term kind of a hit kind of a way, um, you know, feel more empowering or something. Exactly,
1: it brings life energy back to the system, and it throws off the shame. Mm. And so uh, I think it's the sort of the ongoing state um, of the folks who are opposed to anti-racists. There's an ongoing state among the the white supremacists, nationalist groups, the um the Proud Boys, the the, the, these strangely um terrifying uh groups of of folks who are white who are visiting violence and, and, and fear upon others.
2: Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, we talked a few weeks ago and, um, in early August and mid August, and now we're talking at the very beginning of September and there's a lot that's happened in the last few weeks. And a lot of it has been more of the same and the, you know, more of the same meaning more police murders of unarmed black people and more, um, violence by white people and and murders by 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 white people I mean it's just it's just a lot and I just think that to think about it from the perspective of, what is it going to take to make a difference? Like what is, what is, where is the point of entry as individuals, as a collective? Is it through doing personal healing work? Is it through doing your own trauma work? Is it doing this old, you know, uh, is it doing, what are your unconscious contracts pieces? I mean, these are sort of big questions and sort of more existential questions, but I think a lot of people feel like they want to jump ahead to kind of do something and fix it, or they wanna kind of go to a place where there's a spiritual bypassing, they call it, John Wellwood's term about, oh, we're all one and that's, yeah, but that doesn't happen all the time or it was just one individual or they didn't really know or whatever it is. But this sitting in the grief and the reality of the totality of actually absorbing some of what's unfolding before us because we have cell phone cameras everywhere now and we can actually record what's happening and has been happening, that that feels like it's still a lot. And of course, the eight forty six you know, George Floyd video, I think really brought everything to people's attention. But now at the end of the summer, people are going back to school. People are kind of trying to get back to work and doing different things that I just wonder how much that stays in people's consciousness and what what needs to happen so that this doesn't slip away. And I don't know that you can answer it in a minute. I'm not asking you to solve all the world's problems, but what's happening like physiologically and where can someone begin if they actually want to keep on keeping this? front and center and working toward interconnective interdependence, but also collective liberation?
1: Mm. Well, uh, a couple of things come to mind and obviously I'm not going to be able to solve the world's problems. So right. That, but, but a couple of things seem particularly important to me. One is, that more than anything else, what we see change people is relationship. That relationship, more than anything else, creates change. Mm. Um, And so, keeping that in mind as we go forward, another element for me is starting to see the systemic within ourselves. So, for example... There's a huge call to defund the police, to change the structure of budgets for policing, to create more uh, opportunities for unarmed teams of social workers to intervene on mental health calls. Um, to uh, and, and so that there's people that we can call who are not the police, but who will come to help. Uh, is hugely important. And, And if we look at the way that the systemic is reflected within us, what we find is that we can be warm and resonant with ourselves and catch ourselves with compassion and warmth in moments that are difficult. And we can begin to expect that for our systems, that we can see the correlation between a harsh and critical inner witness and a harsh and murderous external police force.
3: Mm.
1: And that as we become aware of our internal system and the way in which it is not humane, not not caring, then we become more and more aware of the systemic, so there's something for me in both in both narrowing our vision to real connection and relationship and sharing impact, uh, which we can talk about in a moment. And, and also simultaneously widening our vision so that we see the, the outer world and how it reflects our inner world. When we look at the brain scans, some people did brain scans of political parties mm. and found differences in the brains of folks who consider themselves to be conservative and the folks who consider themselves to be progressive. That for folks who are conservative, there's, there's more fear in their bodies, more fear in their brains. Their amygdalas, the fear organ, it's, it's also a, a, an organ for all emotions, but mm. the amygdala, Is is larger in your average conservative brain, Hmm. and that has implications for our world. Another beautiful piece of research that I loved was they took people who considered themselves progressive, people who considered themselves conservative, and they asked them a series of questions about what kind of world they wanted to live in. And in the first round of these questions. The people answered exactly as you would predict. In the second round of questions, they asked the people who were conservative to presuppose that the world was safe. And when they presupposed that the world was safe, their answers were identical to the people who considered themselves to be progressive.
2: Hmm. So, Fascinating.
1: Yes. So we are living in a world very skewed by a sense of scarcity and fear. And um, and Fox News, of course, m- profits from m- maximizing it further because it creates addicted viewers and it creates a buzz that allows things to be sold. So on capital is even coming. well
2: and I think that that's true I mean I was a TV news anchor for nearly 20 years and I worked for Fox and I worked for Tribune and I worked for you know all of the stations and I have interviewed at the other ones like Newsmax and whatnot that are also conservative stations and I remember I mean I interviewed at the network and I worked for what they call an O&O or an owned and operated station here in Massachusetts in Boston and um you know, I guess what it is to say is that when I was starting in, in 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 broadcasting, it wasn't it wasn't so prominent, it wasn't so prevalent, and and then you know, as I as I as I grew up in it, um, there was certainly more of that. And again, it's less. I want people to understand this is about the way in which the physiology is responding to survival and the perception of threat and the perception of safety and fear and and what our senses, what are imprintings, what are six sense doors from the mindfulness, you know, our taste, our touch, our eyes, our ears, our, our, you know, these doors, how they take in the conditioning and the imprinting, and then how that lives in our physiology and our body. And then what are the ways in which we comport ourselves, the things that we need to hold on to, the thoughts we have that turned into hardened beliefs that then can turn into actions, which may or may not be In mindfulness language, what we would call skillful or unskillful, or which very much behaviorally could show up as being harmful or unharmful, or or, you know, so I, I, I guess this piece around the capitalism or the media or the imprintings or the conditioning or the cultural somatic piece it is all kind of tied together. And my mentor, Jack Cornfield talks a lot about greed and it's that there's like that idea of craving or there never being enough and that that's sort of based on a scarcity mentality. And when you hear a lot of people who are people of color talking about doing reparative work or just doing work that's like self-centering during this really turbulent time, a lot of it is about abundance and a lot of it is about is joy. And a lot of it is about like, you know, sort of countering the narrative and like resting as opposed to grinding. And I don't know if you can kind of go there or talk a little bit about that and, and maybe how that lands for you as a, as a, as a resistant mechanism. Um, uh,
1: the, there is, I think, in this uprising, some, there are some very joyful elements that, that can touch us deeply. The sense of at least some people beginning to understand where they had never understood before, people being moved, people having a sense that this is important, uh, people ha- having a sense of engagement and participation and community. It's so precious. So, um, there's no price that can be put on it. It's a kind of abundance uh, that. It is um, rare. (laughs) That's really the true scarcity in this world: is the scarcity of joy, and the scarcity of a sense of really belonging. Mm.
3: Much
1: more scarce than money. Um, But uh, but the more we move into um, claiming it, like that, we get to be (laughs) we get to be joyful. We get to mourn deeply and. Be joyful, no matter who has the structural power. Uh, it's, it, it, it does something sweet for our nervous systems. And the sense of being joined together, being able, Francesca, to do this call with you allows me to have a sense of shared intention, shared care for the world. And mm. that of great importance to all of us. And if there are viewers or listeners who are experiencing some relief that Francesca and I are speaking of these things, we're also supporting your belonging and your mattering and your existence. I remember when when Reagan was voted president, I was devastated. I was like, where are my people? How did my country elect this person to be president? And I have a similar experience now, but it is less lonely because there's more since the 19 uh, since 1980 there's a change in how we're able to connect with one another there are these podcasts there Mm. are um, communities on Facebook there are communities all over that are uprising that are doing the uprising there are small towns that have 200 people where they have 17 people turn out for vigils and for marches and to hold signs. Um, so so there's, a, um, there's an irrevocability of belonging that's of great importance. Mm-hmm. I'm also remembering something you asked earlier. You said, how can we leverage our didactic understanding of what's going on to help us in these moments? in any moments of difficulty and i think that the more we know about the nervous system the more compassion we can have for ourselves mm. so if we know about the nervous system we can say to ourselves so of course you've collapsed you know, of course you feel ashamed and 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 the second thing that you said how can we then allow ourselves to come out of the shame and 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 come back mm. into the world, and uh, and it may be a coming back with someone who's who's white bodied. It may be a coming back to be able to to even say, "Let me go and find out what I've done.
3: Mm.
1: Uh, let me go and work with somebody I know who will support me, so that I can come back to you with an honest and grounded um, repair." Mm. Or it may be uh, if we're someone who is not privileged, who is receiving harm, that we're able to come out of the shame because that's part of what happens with that blow after blow to the immune system. To be able to come out of the shame and say, I need my community. I need to be able to reach out. I need to say to someone that this happened. I need somebody to say, of course. Right.
3: Me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: So either way, the more we understand about about the nervous system and about shame, and about that also that rage response to try to come out of shame, the more we become like equi- equanimous. Is that mm. the right word? Yes. To <laughs> to to the 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 slings and arrows of fortune and. We start to claim our accountability and claim uh, our our, our self care and care of others mm. in a very
2: different
1: way. Yeah,
2: yeah, that feels really important—the claiming of the accountability because, you know, it's it's sort of like that recognition of owning the privilege or owning the inheritance. But then also, you know, I grew up with the, the idea of noblesse oblige, to, to whom much is given, much is expected, right? And in terms of my family value, in terms of like, you know, do something with your life, right? Or or make good of what you have if you're able-bodied or if you're of, you know, whatever. Like, you know, don't just be a slug and like eat bonbons all day or whatever, which is fine. It's good to also rest, obviously. I'm not, and, and I think in that way, just the idea that if you have inherited the white skin privilege in a racialized society, it, it just needs to be named and acknowledged. And I think that one of the things that I've tried to just start to have conversations about is let's interrogate whiteness. Let's talk about you as a white person in a racialized world with a white racial identity. Let's unpack that. And, and, in the, in the world of therapy that I'm involved in and in school that I took and took classes and get degrees from and stuff, you know, it's always talking about the marginalized population that's being disenfranchised, which is important. But I I think that this work is the inner work that then allows you to show up with the presence and the attunement and the relationality that you said really does the embodied repair work that is not just a performative or functional piece, which is important, right? Distribution of resources and all of that. Um, But that this is a deeper level um, piece. And I don't know if you have any, examples of how you've seen that actually show up in any, I don't know, any, any classes. You offer a lot of retreats and classes and things like that, or any individual work. Have you ever seen something where there's there's been a repair and that that's one more brick in the repairing of the wall that has been broken yes. in the world around this?
1: Yes, I have seen multiple things. One that comes to mind is it, it has happened several times with people who are white-skinned, white white-bodied, um, who uh, who let go of the contract to do no harm. That <laughs> mm. let go of contracts to always get it right. And I've had them say afterwards, no wonder, no wonder, no wonder people have told me that I'm white-privileged. I see now. (laughs) That's so magical for me. Wow. People suddenly get a systemic vision from Mm. doing this personal work. Uh, Another wonderful experience I had was with someone who inadvertently uh, did a microaggression. And the person they did the microaggression with said, I don't want to explain it to you. You go to your crew of white people and you get this figured out and then you can come back to me. Yeah. And, um, and the, the, the initial response was so much devastation from the person who'd, who'd done this inadvertent, uh, racialization uh, of the use of images and language. And, and, um, and I had the honor of, with so much love, just loving this person who made the error and I realize that I'm using right wrong language but who yeah did this thing that was painful to another person and 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 t- taking this person through my own process this is what I've discovered this is how I see it and that person's body settling to a point where they could write a beautiful letter back of acknowledgement very short Wasn't it was it it said I now I understand what I have done
3: Mm. and I understand
1: why it was painful for you and if you'd like to tell me anything more about it I'm here Mm. and yeah and so we're changed when we're loved when we when we get feedback that we've yeah yeah.
2: And 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 I and what I really love about what you just said is we cha- we're changed when we're loved, meaning that it's in relationship that that we can you know that we can shift, but that also it was with white people, meaning you with this person who had you yeah. know unintentionally but necessarily you know had a negative impact on on a person of color in this case that. Um, that it wasn't the labor and the emotional labor of the person of color to have to then do the teaching and have mm-hmm. to do that, but it was done and then it was offered. And I just want to add that like, I think there can be also a tendency of like, Ooh, do I get brownie points now? Gee, can I post this on Facebook that I wrote this letter? Mm-hmm. Gee, you know, mm-hmm. like, but mm-hmm. that I sense, and, and, and I think people know the difference. And I think that like, in this case, it's clearly not that. Clearly yeah. this is just a real accountability with a humility Mm -hmm. that comes forward, that is felt and kind of deep. And it can be received in a way that, oh, I did this good thing, like I made up for it, or I'm going to donate the money now, or do whatever it is to, and how that just is like Teflon. And there's just a whole different sense and texture of what you're talking about, which is a real metabolizing and that love is part of the lubricant of that.
3: Yes, yes. And
1: we can't do it unless we love ourselves. And we can't do it unless we let go of our contracts to always be right.
2: Sarah Payton, I I think that is a beautiful place to sort of wind down our conversation for the evening. Is there anything else that you would like to add? Because obviously this is a wide ranging conversation and, and I think that it's um, not going to get any easier, but I think that having the tools of understanding that the physiology and the cultural piece of our nervous systems and the safety and and threat, I think is certainly um, a big piece and that the importance of relationship um, is what you bring. So any, any parting words or thoughts? Mm
1: -hmm. Gratitude for your work in the world and to you for inviting me to come and talk with you. I'm very
2: honored. Mm -hmm. Sarah Payton, empathybrain.com and your new book you want to just Mm -hmm. mention?
1: yeah the your resonant self workbook this is the old book your resonant self and the new book is the your resonant self workbook it'll be out next summer
2: beautiful and people can learn more about unconscious construct unconscious contracts and um, your work uh, and your offerings on empathybrain.com thank yes, you so much
1: guided meditations
2: Free guided meditations. Yes, you do. You have a lot of free offerings on there also. Meditations and um, and, and and a variety of tiered pricing levels and um, open to all kinds of, of people. So Sarah Payton, thank you so much for being here on Rerooted. Uh, so much appreciate you. And anyone who wants to reach out to me, I have a lot of um, resources on my website, maximaclarity.com slash resources, uh, anti-racism resources, and also um, classes, books, authors, philosophers, people, um, that you can look into if you want to unpack it. So thanks again, Sarah, take good care.
3: Mm-hmm. Thank you.